I reached the conclusion a while back that um, most people don't listen. They talk, they tell stories, but they don't inquire, they don't listen. If you're a listener, a great listener, um, you, that, that's a, a very helpful thing to being a writer. Welcome to Deviate with Rolf Potts, where I talk with experts, public figures, and interesting people about fascinating topics that meander off topic. Today I talk with travel writing legend Paul Theroux, whose new book, Figures in a Landscape, is out this month. Before I get into the details of what he and I talk about, a reminder, if you've been enjoying this podcast, to subscribe via iTunes or Stitcher or whatever podcast interface you use, and leave a friendly rating or review when you have a moment. I also have a newsletter that goes out a few times each year. You can sign up for that at rolfpotts.com. Now, today's guest has written more than two dozen novels, some of which have been made into movies, perhaps most notably The Mosquito Coast, which was made into a 1986 film starring Harrison Ford and Helen Mirren. But Paul Theroux is probably best known for revitalizing the art of literary travel writing with his 1975 book, The Great Railway Bazaar, He's written more than a dozen in-depth travel books since then, exploring landscapes and cultures around the world. And it's fair to say that he's on a very short list of the world's greatest living travel writers. His reportage stands out for being both erudite and opinionated, and those very qualities have kind of earned him a reputation for being pompous and grumpy, but in my interactions with him over the years, I've found him to be thoughtful, inquisitive, and uncommonly curious about the person who is asking the questions. Take, for example, this interview for the Atlantic Monthly, which I recorded via my speakerphone back in 2011. You also distinguished yourself last year by traveling around the world in six weeks with no luggage. That's correct, yeah. That was... Did you write about that? You know, um, it, it's interesting. I, I, I live blogged that experience. I'm very interested in, in people who don't travel with much. It's the ideal. I mean, obviously, traveling with not having to carry anything is the ideal. Yeah, if if you go to rtwblog.com, and what struck me about that exchange wasn't just that Paul Theroux had turned the interview around and taken an interest in me, it was that his interest was obviously tied to his genuine obsession with the mechanics of immersive deep-dive travel. In fact, if you read his 2011 book, The Tao of Travel, he offers readers a humble and reliable 10-point guide for meaningful travel in the 21st century. Those 10 points are 1. Leave home. 2. Go alone. 3. Travel light. 4. Bring a map. 5. Go by land. 6. Walk across a national frontier. 7. Keep a journal. 8. Read a novel that has no relation to the place you're in. 9. If you must bring a cell phone, avoid using it. And 10. Make a friend. Indeed, for all the millions of words of travel advice you can find online these days, there is an elegance to those 10 principles, which for all their simplicity aren't practiced much by many travelers these days. So while Paul and I talk a fair amount about his new book and the craft of travel writing, our conversation is ultimately grounded in the art of deep travel. Paul talked to me by phone from his home on the north shore of Oahu, and we start off by riffing on where I'm calling from. Let's listen in. Um, how you doing? I'm doing good. I'm doing good. Uh, I'm, I'm calling Where you. are you calling from? I'm actually calling you from Kansas, um, and you probably don't remember it, but it, it, 
Seven years ago, in 2011, when the Tao of Travel came out, I interviewed you for the Atlantic Monthly, um, and I called from Kansas, and it became a part of the conversation just because it was probably you don't get interviewed from Kansas very often. Uh, no, I do remember that. I do remember that. Um, and we, we talked about Kansas, and I, I said how I had been there on a train, I think. Um, well, you also... I've, I found it interesting because I, I listened to the old recording and um, you said, quote, you can find a figure in a landscape in Kansas. Um, yeah. Yeah. And now and now yeah. your your newest book is called Figures in a Landscape. So that's um, right. That's I, it, right it's, it's, it's clearly a resonant phrase. So what does that mean? Well, I suppose, I mean, for, for me, are you, are you, by the way, is this part of the interview or are we just talking? Uh, let's make it part of the interview, if that's OK with you. Oh yeah, no, no. Okay, I think that um, a figure in a landscape is someone who is uh, ideal for a writer to identify and write about. I mean, it's it's someone um, that you you the writer focused on uh, identify, and you identify the personality uh, and you indicate that it's not a stereotype. I mean, it's very important actually when you're writing about someone to make them an individual, to give them their true personality. I mean, and I think that um, that's what I've tried to do in this book. It's also, if you're in Kansas and you, you see someone, the, 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 the person stands out. I think this is why I'm drawn to rural areas and um, to places where, where you could indicate that someone is um, part of the, the human architecture of a place rather than just part of the scene or, you know, the, uh, uh, the, the street life, the mob, the crowd. That's what you want to avoid. So all writing is trying to destroy a, a stereotype. And the individual that you're writing about, the figure in the landscape, is actually the ideal. Does that make it difficult to write about cities and to find people in cities? And do you know of any books that do a good job of evoking non-stereotyped evocations of people in a more urban setting versus a more rural one? I think it, it is difficult to write about cities because they're so... Um, complex, they're multi-layered, they're vertical, um, they're averse to casual conversations. I mean, if you compare, um, well, take the, the book, my last uh, travel book was called Deep South. I was traveling in the South. If you walk down the street in Greensboro, Alabama, or Allendale, South Carolina, or, you know, even... Um, in the Harrison, uh, uh, Arkansas, any town in the South, the person will speak to you. They'll say, hi, how are you doing? How are you doing? How are you? Um, in the post office, you walk in the post office, there's three people there, they'll all say hello. I mean, that does not happen in a city. It happens, I mean, for, for various reasons. One is, there's too many people, there'd be too many greetings. The other is that, and and you don't, need to be disarmed in a city. In a, in a small town, you need to be disarmed with a welcome. Cities are very difficult to write about. I mean, where do you start? 
do you start with uh, the man in the street or the woman in the street, with the business person, with the shop, with the, the people who live, you know, in the tenements? It, it's just extremely difficult. Um, one of the great writers about cities was Charles Dickens. And uh, Dickens actually went to New York in his his uh, American uh, travels, which is called American Notes. One of the things that Dickens did, and he did it in, in many cities that he that he visited, was go to prisons. He was uh, in in uh, New York. He went to the cloisters and he talked to the guards and he and and looked at prisoners. So I think it, you need a, you need to focus on a particular element in a city. It is possible to write about a whole town. I mean, if, if it's a small town, you can, you can deal with it. So um, I think that one of the ways to write about cities is with the novel. And probably the novel is the ideal um, method for writing about cities as a... Um, uh, in the in their in their complexity, Tom Wolfe just died, uh, and he was someone who actually dealt with New York in a, in a, in, a, in a way that that reflected the city as it is. Um, he was criticized by Norman Mailer, but Norman Mailer also wrote about New York. He wrote about Brooklyn in particular in a book called Barbary Shore. So um, I think that probably fiction is the best way to get to a city, and. Um, travel book you just have to you know choose your you're writing about an itinerary you're going through a city and um uh it, it's 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 much harder in a city than um in the countryside you notice that i would say if you did a poll of travel books that most of them are written about rural places open places warm places places where people are approachable I mean, I, I, that's just a theory, but I think it would stand up to scrutiny. Your, your new book has a mix of, of, of a lot of things, uh, including uh, kinds of literary criticism, but it has, mixed in with travel stories, it has celebrity profiles. And I think one challenge with that is sort of the performative nature of celebrity. But then I'm thinking also in a small town, you know, um, be it in the United States or in Africa, there's also... And you can disagree, but it feels like there's a performative nature, a way that people talk about themselves um, that you have to make sense of as a writer. H have you found that you can you take a person uh, on the street in the American South or in Africa at face value, or are you struggling with with issues of what they're really meaning in the sense that a that a celebrity might? That's a very good question. A celebrity is, uh, you say the performative person, is someone who's been interviewed a thousand times. I interviewed Robin Williams, Elizabeth Taylor, and um, I, 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 I talked to very other, various other celebrities. But, but take those two. Imagine the number of times they've been interviewed. What I, what I tried to do with them to, to get at it was just spend more time with them and see them in different situations, and then also talk to their friends. I mean, my interview with Elizabeth Taylor was enhanced greatly by my talking to Rod Steiger. Rod Steiger said he saw Elizabeth Taylor on television. He, he said he realized that she was suffering from depression because he had suffered from depression. And then he reached out to her. He went and he took her for hot dogs. And um, so... I approached Elizabeth Taylor through other people, Mike Nichols, uh, Michael Jackson. 
And I, I, I got, you know, it's a bit like Rashomon. You, 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 the more people you talk to, the, the different facets of the personalities emerge. With in, uh, talking to a person in a village in Africa, you're getting someone who has perhaps never been asked a question about how much money they make or the crops that they grow or how many children they have or how old they are or where they went to school or what was their first memory. And they may not have even spoken to that many outsiders before. So you're talking to someone who is, it's not, not naive exactly, but innocent of, uh, of scrutiny or, or, or of interview. And that person also um, may wonder why you're asking the question and may not give you all the information. The whole secret to, to writing is spending time. I, mean, I often said, say that people say, oh, what's writing like? And I said, well, writing is really about sitting. I mean, you, you're sitting at your desk. You're not writing. You're, at, you're sitting. You're thinking. And travel isn't all about writing. It's really about spending time with, with the people that you're talking to. Anthropologists would say the same thing. I mean, the great anthropologists are people who live for extended periods of time with people, Margaret Mead or Malinowski in, in uh, Papua New Guinea or, in, or Colin Turnbull in Africa. I mean, and name any great anthropologist, and it's someone who spent time with people. So it's just time, intensity, and also, uh, you know, another way is making a friend of the person, bef- befriending them. I felt at the end of uh, talking to Robin Williams that he was a friendly guy. I mean, I, I, I felt I had some rapport with him. With um, Elizabeth Taylor, the last word that she, she asked a friend, is Paul married? I mean, that, she didn't see me as a partner, but she, was, she got interested in, in me uh, in a way that was helpful to the interview. So, I mean, I think it's just a question of how much time you put into it. It's not like the kind of journalism where you go for a day, you talk to someone, and you have to file a story that night. I, I've done that as a journalist, but that's not the best way of doing a portrait of a person or doing, say, a figure in a landscape. Well, I want to get a little deeper into the idea of spending time with a person because the amount of time that is spent with a place, for example, as a travel writer will affect what kind of stories come out of it. But you mentioned Michael Jackson. One of the most interesting things to me in the story about Elizabeth Taylor is when Michael Jackson uh, started asking you questions uh, specifically about um, the apocryphal story of Judas. Um, and it's funny, we started uh, by this conversation by talking about Kansas. It was one of a handful of things you had asked me about in our interview seven years ago, along with traveling with no luggage and sort of Orwell's approach to technology and Wigan Pier. Um, is that sort of an indicator that maybe you're breaking through a little bit when the person takes a more active interest in, in you? Definitely, definitely. And I wrote a piece in, in this book, this, this, uh, there's a story about Hawaii. And um, I've lived in Hawaii now for 30 years. But when I, about 10 years ago, maybe a little more, um, National Geographic asked me to write a story about Hawaii. And I did so. And I talked to 15 or 20 people. Not one of them asked where I was from. Every person I approached, I brought honey. I had beehives at the time. I don't have them now, but I, I brought a jar of honey as a present and, you know, made an appointment and showed up and said, you know, here's some honey from my hives. 
And they take it, say, oh, that's, thank you. And what do you want to know? And then I talk. And they never asked where I had come from, where the beehives were. They happened to be near my house on the island of Oahu. Um, they didn't register my name. Not that I, you know, that, that, um, I'm not saying, do you know who I am? I'm just saying they had absolutely zero interest. And they were very resistant to being asked questions. And in many cases, they were people who'd been asked a lot of questions, and they felt, as some people do, that they owned their own story. But there was a, a total lack of interest. In a way, it's a kind of narcissism. It's also defensive, because people on islands uh, uh, see virtually every non-islander as a threat, so, someone who's going to take something away from them. Uh, in my case, take away their story. But in contrast to that is, you know, the person that you talk to um, in, in my book about the South, or in, in my travel in general, actually, is that in Africa and Asia and China and, you know, in the South and in England, I went away from the travel with a handful of friends, people that I stayed in touch with. In the South, lots of them. Uh, I've recently been traveling in Mexico, and it's impossible to travel in Mexico if you don't have friends. I mean, you have friends for help, for warnings, for just to, 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 to um, take the curse off being uh, alone. And uh, that never happened in Hawaii. And th there's a piece called Islands Upon Islands. It's in, it's in this book where I talk about that very thing, which is that there was absolutely um, uh, no interest in me. Now, I'm not saying that in a conceited way of saying, how dare they, they're not interested. I'm saying that in an analytical way, that isn't that interesting? What does that reveal about the person being interviewed or spoken to? First, they don't want to be my friend. Secondly, um, they, they see uh, a non-islander, although I'd lived there, but I don't, you know, I'm not local in that same sense. You can live here your whole life, but if you're, if you're from the mainland originally, you're not a Hawaiian, you're not an islander, you're not, you know, you're not, a kama'aina, as they say. So I find that, you know, fascinating. <laughs> and that's, you can't take this stuff personally. You have to kind of stand, step away from it and say, um, what's being said here or what's not being said? What does this reveal about a place? And then you, if you, if you're not, you know, you can't be offended. You need to see it as an aspect and, and to, and to examine it. Why does it happen? What does it reveal? Um, and, uh, in that way, if you if you're detached from it, not cold, but but detached, um, then you see something that other people might miss. Whereas, you know, if you're if you're an ordinary traveler and you go and you say these people are unfriendly, I don't want to go there again. Then you've kind of missed the point. If you say these people are unfriendly, why are they unfriendly? Then you've kind of grasped something valuable. Well, this sort of gets into the very challenge of travel writing, because one thing that you characterize in that story is the idea of someone visiting from Hawaii for five days and writing a breezy magazine article about it, um, you know, as, it, as if it has been understood in a way. You also talk about Graham Greene's travels to Liberia, um, which took him yeah. four, four weeks and allowed yeah. him to speak of Africa in air quotes in a way that an expat or a missionary, and certainly a local, could not. So I guess the question is, how much time do you need to write uh, 
about a place. I mean, obviously, a travel writer, by very definition, is an outsider. <clears throat> Yet, uh, it feels like you felt four weeks a little bit wanting for Graham Greene. It feels like your a lot of your books have have been in, in counted in months, three or four months of travel. Um, how much time is needed, or is it less about time than about approach? It's less about time than approach. Um, in the Tower of Travel, there's a chapter called how much time, I don't know how it's, what the actual words are, but it's, it's how much time a person spent in a particular place. Uh, I got a copy here. I can tell you what the, that chapter is called. Um, it's called, How Long Did the Traveler Spend Traveling? It's in the Tower of Travel. And it ranges from, you know, just a matter of days. Like D.H. Lawrence spent um, a week in Sardinia, and he wrote a book called Sea in Sardinia, and, uh, a week. Um, Ibn Battuta, the, the great, um, uh, he, he was actually from Morocco, uh, um, spent, spent 27 years traveling. And uh, Marco Polo 20, was 26 years. Sorry, Ibn Battuta was 29 years. And um, Lafgadi O'Hearn, great guy in Japan, was 14 years. So, but other people have spent, you know, uh, just a matter of months. Naipaul was in India nine months for, for that one book. It, there's a nice quote by, uh, by Doris Lessing on this subject. And she said, once I was making a mental list of all the places I'd lived in, having moved about so much and soon concluded that the common sense or factual approach leads to nothing but error. You may live in a place for months or even years, and it doesn't touch you. But a weekend or a night in another, and you feel as if your whole being has been sprayed with the equivalent of a cosmic wind. So it, you can spend a day. I mean, Rudyard Kipling never went to Mandalay. <clears throat> he wrote one of the most memorable poems about Mandalay ever written on the road to Mandalay. He went to Rangoon. He got off. He, was, he just spent uh, half a day looking at the, at the great temple in Rangoon. He did not go to Mandalay, but he... he and, and, and he, he, he would not have seen the Irrawaddy River either. So there you go. It, it, it's, it's a question of the, the, the quality. I mean, you can you, you go to a place and you meet a person and the person makes a profound impression on you. And you may not see the, the, the context necessarily, but, but writing about that person um, or that, that experience uh, can be life-altering. Or, or, you know, meeting the person can be life-altering. There are people who spend years in a place, as I just quoted Doris Lessing. I mean, there are people who have lived, say, in Hawaii their whole lives, and they don't, they don't stir from their own island or even their own little town in the island. I mean, the same is true. I've met people in Maine. Um, uh, I uh, uh, met a lobsterman, and... We were talking about Maine in general, and I realized here's a guy who'd spent his whole life just on his lobster boat. He really hadn't traveled in Maine. He'd never been on a plane. He hadn't been to Boston. He'd just been in Maine. But, and, and if you asked him about things, I mean, he was quite good um, on local stories, but he didn't see that the longer you stay in a, in a place, the, in a way, the less you see, because you, you just you make these uh, assumptions about it. And this is why uh, a fresh eye or fresh face in a place sometimes sees things that other people miss. They also miss things that other people know or won't tell them. So it's, 
it's a it's a very complicated thing. But it, it staying a long time in a place doesn't necessarily make you smarter or better able to write about the place. You need the ability to write. You need the gift of observation. You have to develop the gift of listening, of um, of looking closely, of asking the right questions, and um, and not threatening people. But I think that it's a study. Uh, I reached the conclusion a while back that um, most people don't listen. They talk, they tell stories, but they don't inquire, they don't listen. If you're a listener, a great listener, um, you, that that's a, a very helpful thing to being a writer. What would you say characterizes, in, in especially uh, successful travel writing, especially in an age when when local people are are, are connected to to uh, the World Wide Web and can comment upon and even write their own accounts of place? I, I would say it's the human element. It's if you can find out in a in a, in a travel book the human element the um, the, the human factor, the, the flesh and blood of a place, anatomizing or, uh, or, or describing the people who actually live in a place, what their lives are like, what their stories are like, what their past has been like, then if you can get at that, it, it's who lives in this place, not take Hong Kong. Uh, I mean, you go to Hong Kong, it's, it's a, it seems like an impenetrable city, very vertical very tall, very dense. I mean, it, it, it's one of the most uh, densely populated uh, cities on earth. <clears throat> so where do you begin? You would begin with the individual. It's um, through people's stories, the human factor. One of the great books about India is um, Naipaul uh, wrote three books about India, An Area of Darkness, A Wounded Civilization, and a book called A Million Mutinies. And The Million Mutinies is... is, is a, a very thick book where uh, Naipaul simply talks to people at length. He visits them. He visits them over a period of uh, weeks, sometimes months, and he writes down their stories. So it's it's a chain of voices, a chain of stories. I would say that's the successful thing. The one that interests me the least is the one where it's just about the traveler. Uh, nothing is achieved. Of I was here, this happened to me, that happened to me, this happened to me. I had a bad meal, I met a woman, I met a guy, we hooked up, I got on a bus, uh, I met some people, this happened and that happened. It's, it's a completely egotistical way of, of, of writing about a place, and that's actually um, one, of the, uh, one of the ways that um, uh, travel books get written. The only successful, or the, the only way that that's ever interesting is when... The individual story, the person telling the story, is uh, the subject of an ordeal, and when they, uh, of of a person being um, tested uh, through an ordeal, an adventure, something difficult, and succeeds at the end of it, uh, finds um, uh, finds his or her way home. There are plenty of books like that. Um, uh, you know, people been abandoned or uh, sunken ship, um, or uh, lost in the wilderness, or you know, Wilfred Thesser, Wilfred Thesser wrote a, a great one about um, Arabia, Arabian sands, just how difficult it was to ride through it, the, all the awful things that happened. Well, that's forgivable then, but 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 someone, just an American, having a bad meal, and then going on and 
you know, having a a, uh, a a phony ordeal, a fake ordeal. I, I, I describe this in um, in the Deep South book, a mock ordeal. Someone comes to America and starts talking about how dangerous it is in Chicago, or how um, I don't know, but the bad meals you get in the South or whatever it is. I listed the uh, the books. They're often written by English people. Eng- the English people come to America and they write about, um, you know, how strange we are. It's like being on the moon. And you think, well, where has this person been? And, ha- and has this person traveled much in England? I have. As far as the colonialism thing goes, I mean, if the charge of um, the post-colonial world, I'm in the um, enviable position of, you know, lucky, fortunate position of having actually lived in a in a in a colony. I mean, I lived in Africa when Nyasaland, as it was called then, was still flying the Union Jack, and there were clubs that didn't admit Africans. There were sports clubs; they weren't integrated. Uh, there were still all the old, you know, Colonel Blimps around, and uh, and the British were in charge. And then I was there when, uh, you know. Six or eight months later, when um, uh, the country became independent and the Union Jack came down, I mean, that, then I, I was and I traveled to Rhodesia when it was still, you know, a white-dominated country, and South Africa, ditto. So I saw the transition from a colony or a territory to an independent republic to a dictatorship to, you know, to whatever we have now. And I, uh, over the this span of time. You're lucky if you see history being enacted in that way. It's very, very helpful. I was in China when China was just um, a lot of muddy roads and factories with 25 watt bulbs and people, you know, uh, just laboring to work wearing blue suits. It's now, you know, uh, uh, modernized to a high degree in many places. Some places are still you know, like they were in 1930 I mean, uh, with uh, oxen and small villages. But Shanghai is a, is a modern city. So, I, But I, I was in Shanghai in 1980 when it was just a, a riverfront with not much happening and with uh, three hotels. So uh, one helpful thing in writing is to live a long time. And if you do, then you see the changes in a place. And you, if you see the changes... You're able to to write about what's likely to happen. I mean, you you don't you can't become prophetic, but telling the truth is inevitably prophetic. But it's helpful if, and I would say to you know any young traveler, uh, I've been to place a place where you will never go. It's called the past. I was in the past, and the past is another country. You know, people do things differently there. To quote the famous book, so it's um. Just longevity helps and gives you perspective, and that also helps you see life in the round if you, if you're traveling. So, the older traveler is someone to trust. I think you know, in, in a way, you're the ancient mariner, and you have something to tell uh, the wedding guests. Um, one thing one thing that characterized our last conversation was the idea of smartphones and internet information and the idea that you have all these answers at your fingertips and and you sort of made an argument for unplugging while you travel and i'm just curious to know 
over the course of your lifetime of travel, what you think the essential nuisances are that you should subject oneself to when you travel? Because you mentioned that loneliness makes things happen. So it feels like loneliness is one essential nuisance. What are some other essential nuisances that draw you closer into the travel experience and away from the passive convenience that might be characterized by internet smartphone life in the 21st century? I think that that risk um, is helpful because it focuses you on uh, on the moment. Um, Being out of your comfort zone, taking... um, uh, taking a chance uh, on um, going a, a little bit further than you might have. Um, as you get older, you probably take fewer. I, I, I probably take fewer risks, but I think not listening to people's advice in a lot of cases or, or uninformed people. Uh, I've been traveling in Mexico. If you talk to anyone, they'll say, don't go here, don't go there. I've been driving my own car. It's a lot of trouble, actually, to to drive a car in Mexico, and just to cross the border. You need a a vehicle import permit and insurance and uh, immigration forms and so forth. Most people say that's too much trouble. Well, taking the trouble to, to do that sometimes helps, and talking to people who drive all the time in Mexico helps, too, because... They'll, they have the answer. People in Texas were saying, don't cross the border. But I drove across anyway. I, uh, I can't summarize my uh, findings except to say that, that driving was a very good thing. It was very helpful. It's what I did when I was traveling in the, in the South. I think that, that giving the, 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 probably the thing that is uh, the, the greatest obstacle in travel is a time factor is that you need to conquer that. Having, saying, I have to be back on Thursday or, or next month or next week or whatever it is, that, then you're on a vacation. Then if, when you have a, a time constraint, you have to um, come back at a certain time. It, travel needs to be open-ended. So that's, and then you can stay longer. You don't, you, it's, it's the one-way ticket. You have a one-way ticket. Um, you don't know when you're coming back. I mean, your husband or your wife might say, when are you coming back? And you say, well, I hope. I mean, my wife says the same thing. Uh, when, are you, when will you be back? And I, I said, well, I'll try to maybe, maybe next month or whatever it is and uh, plead for more time. But I really don't know when I'm coming back. I mean, the honest answer is, I don't know. Um, the, the, the smartphone, the Internet, Google, all that sort of stuff is unhelpful. I traveled in Angola. I looked online. Virtually everything that I found when I traveled, that was uh, 2007 or 2008, um, I, I simply couldn't find I, you know, any information that was accurate or helpful. Uh, even when I was in Namibia and I was asking about Angola, uh, people were telling me stories. I don't go there or I've been there. It's terrible, whatever it was. It wasn't until I actually went there, physically went there and uh, traveled that I found out what it was like. It wasn't easy travel, but it was um, it, it, it meant that I, 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 everything I found out at first hand was accurate. And I mean, that relates to 
travel itself, which is that you really can't find out about it in a book. You need to go. That all, all knowledge really originates in direct experience, as someone once said. Actually, the someone is Mao Zedong. He said, is, you need to go, you need to actually do, he's not the only person who said it, but you need actually to go and find out how to do it. You need to actually present yourself, take a risk, be alone. A big obstacle to travel is being with someone else. Someone who's saying, hey, look at that, or let's do this, or I'm tired, or I'm hungry, or whatever it is. Uh, where are we going to stay tonight? I've traveled with people from time to time, and it's very annoying, actually. They they get tired, they get hungry when you're not, not tired or you're not hungry. So um, dealing with with being solitary, not loneliness. Loneliness may be a factor, but just being alone is 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 a factor in in travel too. So all these things. Are, technology doesn't help though. It it consoles your relatives. You can call your wife or husband and say, "I'm all right." But apart from that, really, there's there's. I don't see anything in it. I lived for nine years in Africa and Southeast Asia with no telephone, and naturally no internet or anything like that. Uh, I just wrote letters or received letters, and I did fine. Um, the, the internet and email hasn't made people better communicators. I mean, I'm as out of touch or in touch with the internet as I've been when I was writing letters. I don't get more messages from people because the, the, I'm on email. In fact, in terms of um, contact, I... I hear from my editor or agent probably less than I did when I got letters from them, you know. And all I have to do is send an email. So uh, technology hasn't made life simpler. It's it's made people it's confused and 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 created inaccuracies, I think. But I should also say one other thing, which is that everyone travels differently. Everyone writes different books. So there isn't one travel book or one traveler. I'm only myself, and uh, and what I'm saying just relates to the way I do it. Sure. Do do you use like older tools like travel guidebooks when you travel, or do you just use lo just local information? I use guidebooks from time to time. Um, when I was traveling in Africa, the the uh, the Lonely Planet guide was helpful in some cases. I'm trying to think. Um, I use the one in South Africa. You can find out, you know, where to stay or is this, does this bus leave early in the morning, that kind of thing. But you can also find that stuff locally. Um, but I do use guidebook. I, I suppose um, the, there are good guidebooks. There are great guidebooks, actually. And I, I do look at them. I use maps a lot. I mean, I have very um, detailed maps. And detailed maps have helped me more than guidebooks. And I can think of many instances where I've been in a place and I think, how do I get from there to there? And someone says, oh, it's that road. And I look at a map and I say, but there's a road here. And they say, oh, well, that's a small road. No one uses it. And, and usually turns out to be the, the very one that you want. So studying a map is helpful. Um, I find it definitely true in, in when I was traveling in Britain that, that Britain has... Um, the greatest map. They can tell you where every mailbox, every hotel, every pub. They're uh, they're, they're tremendous um, 
tremendously useful, particularly if you're on the ground, you're walking or riding a bike. Has a, had, did you find maps useful in Mexico? One reason I ask is that when I, I drove across Mexico in 2003, and when I saw Mexico City, this beautiful red ring around the metropolis reminded me of similar red rings I've seen around Indianapolis uh, you know, or Portland, Oregon. And when I got there, it bore no uh, resemblance at all to the, to the clean, uh, tidy, logical interstates that I found back then. And, and in fact, uh, I sort of got lost when I was in Mexico City. Uh, do maps... Where were you driving? How did you, where did you drive? Uh, how did you approach Mexico City? From what direction? From the north. I was part of a Land Rover expedition that drove down to Tierra del Fuego. And um, so we came from the oh, north. Oh, no kidding. And, and I was sort of, we had a GPS, um, but it was a fairly primitive one. And I am fond of paper maps. And so I was sort of navigating and I sort of betrayed our expedition by assuming that this, this ring around the city would have well-marked exits and such, when in fact it wasn't, um, it, it wasn't a, a United States-style uh, road system, but it was much more localized. Um, have 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 maps ever similarly done you wrong, or is it, do their, it, does their logic usually get you to the right place? No, no, maps can maps can mislead you. Your your experience in Mexico is um, classic. That that that's happened to me. Uh, there are a lot of maps of in Africa, um, maps of. Uh, to, to my certain knowledge, Mozambique, Malawi, Angola, the Congo, of roads that don't exist. I mean, it shows you, you see a, a red line or a green line on a map and you think, oh, there's a road there, but there isn't. Or if there is, it just has potholes and is you know, unusable. As far as Mexico City, the road around it is better than the one that you saw, but just as, you know, probably more crowded, more traffic. And there's policemen. I mean, I had big problems with Policemen stopping me and wanting, uh, seeing my plates. I have Massachusetts plates, wanting bribes. So maps do mislead you. And uh, but it, but Mexican roads uh, are much better because of NAFTA. That that the only way that Mexico can make a living is by having uh, uh, great truck routes. So the you know these giant um, eighteen wheelers. Um, bring all this stuff into the States and the, the main roads are just choked with, with big trucks and the, um, the border posts are just lined up. It, the, 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 the end of the, there are still some trains, but um, it's the, the roads are greatly improved for the trucks. Not, and, and, you know, you have to battle them when you're, um, when you're driving. It's interesting that you mentioned Mozambique because I had a, a similar situation uh, almost exactly a year ago, where um, the map had had me believe that the road would be very simple and primitive. It turns out it wasn't a primitive road, but it was almost impassable because it was a Chinese road that probably won't be done in another year or two. So it was very wide. Was it? Um, it was it was south of Maputo, south of the capital. Um, uh, on, oh, in Mozambique. Um, in Mozambique, correct. Um, yeah. And uh, so it's whereas NAFTA has affected the roads in Mexico, the, the Chinese presence um, is very probably for similar reasons is creating, a, a, I would presume, a futuristic highway because this the roadbed was so wide, you know, it was going to be a six lane highway to South Africa. But um, 
at the time it was just mud and it was very, very difficult to drive, but I imagine it yeah. would be very easy to drive probably by the year 2019 or 2020. So I think these changes are happening everywhere for different reasons. Yes, they are. The Chinese, it's self-serving for the Chinese because they're, uh, I mean, they, they get everything from, from Africa that they don't have in China. I mean, they're, they're looking for, for timber, for minerals, for, um, you know, uh, and they also want to sell goods there. So it's um, they're creating a kind of colonial um, uh, infrastructure, which is when the when the British um, had colonies in East Africa and Central Africa, they built railways so that they they could move goods, and it wasn't so that to help people to get people to school or to work necessarily, but it was so they could move cotton or. Uh, copper in the case of uh, Uganda, or or they could they could uh, you know do business, and um, the Chinese that's what that's what the Chinese are doing. But as far as roads being, yeah, it's uh, they're building roads and they're building railways, but but it's for it's for their own purposes. It's it's so that the Chinese can uh, can make more money out of it. In the interest of, of respecting your time, I wanted to come full circle um, and ask you a question, because the last time I talked to you, I asked you where you hadn't been that you wanted to go, and you mentioned Angola and the Deep South and Greenland, and you've been to two of those places. Uh, is Greenland yeah. on, on the schedule, or have you been there? In the, the... I have not been there, no. I have not been there. I'm still hoping. Um, it, it, my uh, ambition in Greenland was um, t- to uh, to go to a place. There's a, there's a famous book um, by a man, a man called. It came out mid 19th century. Elisha Kane, Arctic Observations. It was called. Um, Henry David Thoreau read it. Emerson read it. And t- everyone read it actually. And it's an ordeal that takes place in Upanavik. Uh, I, I wanted to paddle a kayak around there. Mm. Um, it's not an it's not a easy place to get to, but you know one of these days I will. Um, I just wanted to go and spend some time there, and it's not on the way to anywhere. It's one of those places where you really have to make an effort. Um, the other thing is that I'm more and more interested in traveling um, just in the way uh, uh, on the ground. You know, I don't want to fly around from. And a lot of travel in Greenland is um, is is flying from place to place. It's a problem in um, in Alaska actually too. That Alaska is a very difficult place to to move around in without getting on a plane. If you go to Alaska, and I, I was in Alaska last year, and um, everybody had a story of just isolation or, or um, small plane travel. You know, every there's just Constantly having to get on a plane in these small airstrips to isolated places. They're not they're not connected. I like connecting a place with roads. Um, Greenland doesn't have a lot of roads, but it does. I mean, ideally, um, I would uh, charter a boat and sail around Greenland. I may not have mentioned Mexico. Mexico was has been on my radar for a long time. And is that going to be a book? I hope so. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm still sort of reading about it, traveling there, and making notes. But ultimately, yeah, I hope so. 
And and of course your your new book is just out. What else what else is in in the future? Any any other projects like novels or journeys beyond uh, Greenland and, and Mexico? Well, I still write short stories and 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 publish them, but now Mexico is occupying my mind at the moment. I'm not doing much else. I'm concentrating on that. I've traveled for the past 2 years. I've been there pretty intensively. I studied Spanish. I figured out how to drive there. And it's not just driving through it, but um, driving into Mexico, driving around Mexico, leaving Mexico, leaving my car in Texas, going back to Mexico, you know, making a little study of, um, of how to drive in Mexico. So that's occupied me a lot. Um, but it's been very profitable. And um, as I said, I've made a lot of friends there and uh, it's on people's minds. I mean, um, uh, President Trump keeps talking about how they're terrible people and and immigrants are just uh, uh, rapists and they're horrible. And it's a moment to to reflect on uh, the stereotypes that he's talking about and uh, an ideal, you know, setup for for me. Someone says, "This is a terrible place. Don't go there. It's dangerous." And my feeling is, well, that's the very place you should go. This has been Deviate with Rolf Potts. More about everything that was just mentioned, including links to Paul Theroux's new book, Figures in a Landscape, can be found at the show notes at rolfpotts.com deviate. And as always, you can contact me with insights or questions at deviate at rolfpotts.com. This episode was produced by Justin Glow. Cedar Van Tassel does the music. Thanks for listening, and I hope you tune in for future episodes of Deviate with Rolf Potts.